0: Welcome to Piecemeal, a podcast hosted by the EMILY Program, where we put it all together for you. Piecemeal discusses topics related to eating disorders, body image issues, and how society may contribute to distorted thinking. Please keep in mind that we may discuss difficult topics, and we ask that you use your own discretion when listening, or that you speak with a therapist as needed. I'm your host, Jillian Lampert. Today, we get to hear about Eating Disorder Recovery, a fantastic recovery story from Kara Russo, who has graciously joined us to share her story. And her experience with eating disorders with all of us. Kira is a full-time student at the University of Notre Dame, beautiful campus, studying film, television, and theater. As an eating disorder survivor, she hosts her own podcast entitled Heavier Than I Look, which aims to empower survivors, educate listeners, and foster conversations surrounding eating disorders. By finding meaning in her own suffering, she hopes to fight against the silence that eating disorders demand and to liberate others from the same demand. We can't wait to hear more about all of this. Thank you so much for being here with us today, Kira. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Fantastic. So to start us off, can you take us, take us to the beginning of your eating disorder story? We know that you know, no eating disorder of starts at any one you know, exact pinpointable time, but perhaps give us just a
1: general sense of some of the early moments of your eating disorder. Sure. So I will just say from the start, when I was about eight years old, I just started observing my body. And they weren't necessarily negative observations. They were just observations and comparisons. And that those thoughts about my body and the notice differences between mine and others just kind of were on the back burner for a couple of years until I was about 14. And I was an eighth grader at this point. So I was going into high school and it was the end of my eighth grade year. And there were a lot of things in my life that were just, you know, just like out of my control and very stressful. So eating disorder behaviors kind of started unknowingly and in a way like harmlessly as well, like they weren't intentional, but they were just kind of my way of gaining control of my life. So at that time, I was, you know, kind of going through puberty. So I had a heightened discomfort of my body and the changes that were occurring. You know, the transi- it was a transition period. I was going into high school. I was very nervous about that transition. I was also coming out of middle school. And the transition period and all of the stresses involved was such. Again, like you said, there's no pinpointable time for me developing an eating disorder. But all of these things kind of compounded to then me just feeling, you know, controlling what I was eating was like was purposeful in mitigating against all of like the anxiety and the stress and all of the other things that I faced outside of that. That makes so much sense in terms of, you know, now what we know about the brain
0: science with eating disorders, that just like you said, it's not like you woke up one day and we're like, I'm going to get an eating disorder to feel more in control. Right. It it doesn't happen that way. It's the body changes, life changes, so much diet culture and body consciousness that when some people start dieting and change the way they eat, it feels kind of calming. and like there's this sense of control and now we we know like that's what happens in the brains of people that end up sort of staying with that kind of diet or that kind of eating disorder behavior right it just feels like not that bad right and starts to feel a little reassuring and and like you have some control so totally makes sense so, how long did that go on for you at that point? You know, here you are, you're 14, you're starting to have these things. What happens next?
1: Right. So at the end of my eighth grade year, going into the summer before my freshman year of high school, I started running to prepare for the track team because I was gonna do well, I was gonna do cross-country in the fall and then track winter track in the winter and then and then outdoor track in the spring. And With that sport, you do have to prepare. You have to make sure you're doing your mileage, you know, every single day, every single week in order to get your body in a zone where it can actually like, you know, complete that mileage day by day. And it easily and quickly turned into running as a mechanism for me to control not only how many calories I would allow myself that day, but also how much weight I could possibly lose. So running then became like the vehicle by which I changed my body. In addition to what I was consuming in my intake, it was those two things kind of combined. So then I faced that in the summer going into my freshman year and then the entirety of my freshman year. I basically would go, you know, wake up and really avoid food for the entire day. I would only focus on my academics, only focus on my schoolwork, even during the day. If you were to ask me what my high school cafeteria looked like, I would have no idea because I literally did not step in my cafeteria for an entire year. And I think partly it was me just avoiding social anxieties within the cafeteria because the way my school had it set up was all of the grades were in the cafeteria at one time. So you were a freshman, but you were also in there with seniors which I think was just this concept completely foreign to me. And I just did not even want to try to confront that. And additionally, the cafeteria posed a threat in terms of I would have to confront food. Also, I would have to confront friends and peers who would ask why I wasn't eating food. And those things all combined was enough for me to say, I'm going to completely avoid the cafeteria during lunchtime you know during the entire day and i would go to the library i would go to the girls locker room and then after school i'd practice right after school so that i would go and i would run and i think basically i was running like on adrenaline and soon enough my body kind of went into survival mode to the point where i lost my period i lost my period for the entirety of, of freshman year and I really didn't think anything of it. I kind of thought it was just a symptom of me running so much. But in hindsight, like hindsight is 20, 20 in hindsight, I realized that it was me just not nourishing my body with what it needed, especially during that time when I was exercising so much. And it just became this cycle that was really predictable, really familiar, and it became something to rely upon. And I did that basically the entirety of, of my freshman year. And in terms of like we had talked about a little bit before with like diet culture and stuff, it started becoming a reinforced practice. It was rewarded because, you know, after a while of that cycle, I ended up losing weight. And my friends mostly and my family a little bit too commented on that. and rewarded me for that. Whether it was just their attention to it, that was in itself its own reward, or whether it was like a compliment, that again just a heightened reward for me. And I cherished those things. Like I I relayed those things and those comments in my mind on the daily. And that would serve, you know, more motivation to continue these really unhealthy, really toxic behaviors and thoughts as well. So all of those things kind of compounded for me to continue on that like trajectory for almost a year. And in terms of also like who noticed, basically during that time, I was eating with my family because dinner time would be the only time during the day where I would allow myself to eat with my family. So my family had no idea because they were seeing me eat, they were seeing me like partake in mealtimes and, you know, whatever. And they, I think, noticed my weight loss. I think they just attributed it to me running all the time and just doing a lot of cardio, which was in a way, makes sense. But my family really had no clue. And then the people that did know were my friends, because my friends I would avoid during lunchtime. And that obviously is a very social time to get away from classes and get away from your academics and be with one another. And I completely avoided them. And then, you know, they caught on and they were the ones who first kind of pointed it out to me, expressed their concern. And I was in complete denial for a long, long time. And yeah, so those, those practices continued for a year and it probably took a couple of weeks or a month or so for my friends to start to notice How unhealthy it was, and they would express their concern and always be there for support. But it was never something I could fully confront until many years later.
0: Yep, that sounds sounds so, so much like these illnesses, right? That, that, you know, when you were talking about getting compliments, and that sort of, you know, you're doing a great job, which, of course, just is what our society teaches us to think and to say to one another, and that the our brains take that in as like, I am doing the right thing and I'm following the rules and I'm doing it right. And and that totally makes sense. And that's one of those pieces of this illness that's so challenging is that doing, doing it right can be so, so damaging. So you're in that place where your friends know, your family doesn't quite know. Where do we go next? What happens then? Yeah.
1: So after freshman year of high school, I decided to stop running. I did it only for, like, I only did it for pleasure every once in a while, but it just got to a point where I was physically exhausted and could not sustain that anymore. And I think also mentally exhausted, but I really didn't acknowledge that until later. So sophomore through senior year of high school, I, I kind of think of it and I think of like my eating disorder story in like three chapters. So the first chapter is really struggling with anorexia in my freshman year, but not, not really knowing, not really acknowledging it. The second chapter is during sophomore to, to senior year. And at that point, specifically the summer going into my sophomore year, I had deprived myself for so long. Of food and of nutrition, and of all of those things that my body, when confronted with food, was like, give me all of it. Like, I need to sustain myself. I need to figure out how to survive. And I really struggled with like binge eating. And nearly every single meal, I just wanted, like, I just could not stop eating. And I was so confused you know there's so much confusion in that state because you've controlled what you've consumed for so long you were so acutely aware of every single pound every single extra inch of skin every single calorie and then all of a sudden it was like i can't control it and it was just like this unmitigated like lack of control and i was just so like swamped by that and so inundated with very negative like critical thoughts. And I just really faced a lot of depression during that time too. And for so long in freshman year, I defined myself by how much I weighed. And I think partly because that was rewarded and reinforced by others around me, but also like every single day I would come home and I would get on the scale. Like that would be the first thing I would do when I came home. and if you ask me to look back at pictures myself of myself all throughout high school, I could tell you exactly how much I weighed in every single picture, which is not a quality I, I want to have, which is not a skill I want to have. <laughs> and so sophomore year and junior year specifically were really, I kind of swung to the other side of the pendulum. I had been at one extreme for so long that my body was now like, Give me food, like give me sustenance. I need to live, like let me figure out how to live. And there was a lot of dissonance between what my body wanted and what my brain wanted, and like specifically the eating disorder brain, because that did not, did not, they did not want the same things. (laughs) Yeah,
0: I imagine that was really confusing to try to navigate because, of course, your body was like, all right, really enough is enough. We need some nutrition here. So, how did that feel? Say more about what did that feel like in terms of your identity and your emotions and trying to wrestle through all of that.
1: Totally. It it felt completely overwhelming and just a time of great turbulence in my life, like in, in my head kind of. And at this point I hadn't even acknowledged that I had struggled with an eating disorder. So I was just, I was just so confused. I was like, what is wrong with me? that this is something that I have to face, that I have so much fear and I have so much shame surrounding food and eating in my body. Like, what is wrong with me? And those thoughts coursed through my brain for years. And so all of those things kind of happened for the next two or three years. And I kind of, you know, dealt with more binge eating. And I think too, it it became like food became a very much rewarded object in my life. Food became a reward for me being very strict and very much in control of what I was eating and how much I was exercising. And that reward system and that pathway, that neurological path in my brain was so strong that it literally ruled my life for like three years. And so I struggled with I I would coin it more like binge eating for the next three years. And senior year I tried to kind of combat the binge eating as as much as possible, but I kind of I struggled again because I, I just was very restrictive and I didn't really know how to recover. And I thought the only way how to and how to how to undo all of the failure that I thought that I'd done on myself over the last few years was to restrict. So I kind of fell into more very rigid eating patterns during my senior year. And at this, at this point, I had gained all of the weight back and more. And that was also probably one of the hardest things and probably still one of the hardest things to face during recovery is weight change. Because again, it was so integral in how I defined myself that it changing and specifically me gaining weight, I had such a phobia of gaining weight that it again became like the ruling factor of my life. And senior year, the end of senior year, it was actually the first time I ever acknowledged having an eating disorder. I think it was the first time I actually said the phrase like eating disorder. And that was wild for me. The end of my senior year, I had an English assignment about multiple identities. And I was thinking a lot about how I define myself. And again, I had defined myself solely by my weight, solely by these like numerical, quantitative definitions of self, whether it was my weight, how many calories I consumed, how many calories I had like expunged by like running or or exercising. So that English assignment really forced me to confront how I define myself and my own self concept. And then I decided to write a poem about having an eating disorder. And it was the first time. And I remember I was so anxious about this poem. And I literally did not write it until like the last night before the assignment was due, which is not like me. But I was just so anxious about it and so fearful of having to confront something like this because it makes it real. When you put it in writing and when you speak it, it makes it real. So I was very nervous about it, but I ended up writing the poem And it was kind of funny because once I got in the zone, like once I started to write, I couldn't stop. And it was suddenly like this just I opened Pandora's box and it was this outpouring of all that I had felt for nearly four years. And I wrote the poem and the next day was our presentations of the poem. And I think I was the first or second person to present in my English class, but I had the poem in my hands. And I got up in front of my English class. I, I sat down and I just started to read. And every, and nobody at this point had really known anything. I had one of my best friends in the class who had known, which was just was monumental to have her there in order to be like a support system during that moment. And I started reading and I got so emotional. I, ju- I literally just started bawling, crying while reading this poem. Because not only was it, you know, a dictation of of my truth for the past four years, but it was also me, not like not only me giving myself my own voice with this story, but also revealing that voice and revealing that story to everyone. So it was this kind of, you know, overwhelming, but also incredibly formative, like restorative experience for me. And I read it during my English class. I eventually got control of my emotions <laughs> and was able to finish the poem. And it was like, it was incredible. And then all of a sudden I didn't want to stop sharing. And a couple weeks later, they had a poetry fest at my school and I ended up sharing the poem there. And again, very much an emotional experience because you're, you're very vulnerable in that situation but I shared it in front of everyone who went to Poetry Fest and it was filmed. So it was like the entire school and district had access to it, but I shared it and I ended up winning like best poem of that year or something, which was just totally unexpected, but so rewarding. And even that, that accolade, it meant a lot to me, but it didn't mean as much as me like giving myself like the gift of of my own voice in my story. So now with my whole school had access to this knowledge (laughs) of my story and still my family had no idea. So I go home that night and I take the poem with me because this was basically like, this was my declaration. This was my hidden self in a way. And I take the poem home that night and I, you know, sent my parents down. I'm like, hey, I have something to read to you. <laughs> and I read them the poem. And again, I got very emotional. And it was, again, just the craziest of experiences. Because these, this is what, what I was feeling for four years, but was silenced and was minimized by myself. And it was internalized. And then all of a sudden it was this revelation in public. So I shared it with my with my family and they were shocked because they did not know but they were also very much supportive. I think they were also just like confused because I don't think they had really known like what an eating disorder was or you know that their daughter had one. <laughs> but yeah, so I I I shared it with my parents that night. So before sharing the poem, I think like one or two people knew. And then I shared the poem and then all of a sudden hundreds of people had the ac- access to my stories.
0: That's incredible. What an amazing story. <laughs> I mean, I, I could just see it. I mean, that's wow. So what did your family do? What did you do? You got everyone went to school the next day. Like what <laughs> happened then? This huge new phase in your life
1: that. You know, here here I am, everybody. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It was very freeing and it was very liberating. And those things were great. Unfortunately, it was not the start of my recovery. I thought me sharing this and saying, Hey, listen, I had an anorexia, I had an eating disorder, I still struggle with some of these things was me curing myself. I thought that was the cure. <laughs> I was like, Great. Pack it up, all good. (laughs) I'm I'm gonna guess that
0: didn't quite happen that way. wasn't quite the cure, right? Right. Okay.
1: (laughs) Right. Unfortunately, that's not how these things work. I would not take it back for the world. And if I hadn't shared my my story, then I don't know where I would be now. But it was not the be all end all cure, (laughs) and I kind of thought for the next, like, six months or so, I was like, all right, I'm good. You know, don't need to worry about this anymore. Do not have an eating disorder anymore. I still had not confronted struggling with binge eating. I thought I, you know, and I think this was me too, my misunderstanding of eating disorders. I thought binge eating and, like, I thought that was a failure. You know, like I thought I didn't want to proclaim that because that was an even more vulnerable part of myself and even deeper wounds than perhaps the anorexia was. So it kind of went on the back burner in terms of my mind for a long time. I denied needing help. I think it was also because it was like highly functioning in a sense, like I could just deal with it. And I felt like I had dealt with it for so long that it didn't need the attention that it probably did. And then I went to college, <laughs> which, you know, is in and of itself an incredible time period of transformation, of becoming like an individual, you know, trying to venture into adulthood and all of these things. So, My first semester of college, a year ago, it was incredible. It was four months of just didn't care a wink about food, didn't care a wink about exercise. And this was because I was eating with people and eating with people who had very normative, like healthy experiences with food and and meal times and experiences with exercise and experiences with their body. So I was adopting all of those behaviors and being surrounded by such like comfort and celebration of food and of our bodies. That was so helpful for me. And I described my fall semester as being like blindingly euphoric because it was, it was just, and I also, I also didn't have a scale at this time. I did not bring a scale to college. And that was one of the best decisions I had ever made. And so I went four months weightless and I had no care in the world of how much weight I was, nor how I looked, nor what I was eating, nor how much I was exercising. And it was this freedom that I had not felt in four or five years. So it was incredible. And then I come home. This is Thanksgiving break of last year. So almost a year ago. I come home and I'm home for probably about four days, maybe four or five days during Thanksgiving. And nearly every single person I saw when home for Thanksgiving commented on my weight. Ironically, during that time, I had ended up losing weight completely unintentionally and in a healthy way because my body was just returning to its set point and returning to a place where it felt comfortable after years of struggling with binge eating and i ended up losing weight again completely unintentionally but every nearly every single person when i was home commented on that and i was positively regarded for that thinness there were a mix of concern and compliments depending on like what people knew about me struggling with an eating disorder so my parents kind of expressed more concern than did you know, some some friends or acquaintances or some other family members. And before going home, I had no intention of stepping on a scale. But then being bombarded with those comments about my weight, then it was everything, then it was everything I could not to do to step on a scale. And the last thing I did before heading back back to South Bend, heading back back to campus was step on a scale. And it was just, it was like life changing that moment because I'd lost some weight again, completely unintentionally. And just that was my body's way of returning where, where it was most comfortable, but I was so disoriented by that number. And then all of a sudden it wasn't enough because initially ignorance was kind of bliss in terms of, of weight loss and weight change but I was not ignorant anymore. And when I went back to school, I was back to school for probably like two, three weeks before heading back home for like holiday Christmas break. And then all of a sudden I had to change everything. My eating disorder had come back rearing its head and I craved more weight loss. And I craved those comments, even if they were concerned from family and friends. And I wanted To be smaller, like I wanted to comprise less space, and those two and a half weeks were hell. And then I went back home for Christmas break, and now the first thing I that I did instead of hugging my family, instead of saying hello, instead of unpacking or whatever it might have been, I you know put my luggage in my room, I dropped it off, and then I stepped on the scale, and that was the first thing I did when I went home. And all of a sudden, I realized I had gained, which just looking back is so trivial, because that was probably like water weight, or just a daily fluctuation. But to me, and my eating disorder brain, it was everything. And it was just this earth shattering number that I could not confront or come to terms with. And Then I was just so so ashamed. I literally thought that number was imprinted on my skin, and that every single person I saw when I was home for Christmas break would be able to see that, and be able to see the shame that I had towards eating and towards food and towards my body on my skin, imprinted on my skin. And then for the next two or so weeks while I was home, I binged like constantly because it was just this—it was just this immense shame, and I felt that I had. Like, destroyed all success that I had made. So, in that sense, my experience during the fall and winter of last year was my eating disorder emerging again. As I'd said, it kind of went on the back burner and it kind of went unseen and unheard for a little while, but it was still there. And then, when all of those things had kind of happened with the comments and the weight loss and all of these things, My eating disorder kind of bombed its way back into my life in this grand gesture. And after Christmas break, I was like, all right, I'm going back to school and a location is going to be this, a change of location is going to be the, you know, solve all of my problems. My eating disorder will go away yet again. (laughs) As you know, I'm sure you guys are aware, a location, a change of location will not solve all your problems. Right. Automatically doesn't change everything else. Right. Right. Exactly. So I went back to school and I continued struggling with binge eating. I continued struggling with an immense amount of fear surrounding food, surrounding eating, surrounding mealtime. And for the next couple of weeks to a month, I was like in a really dark place, like just very much depressed, a lot of anxiety. I didn't know, but I knew that I had put on weight. I couldn't, I, Ditched the scale yet again, which was a good thing. But I felt, you know, I felt like I'd put on weight, and I just was always uncomfortable. It was a very dark time, and I kind of hit rock bottom. And then I was like, okay, I need, I need to see someone. Like, I need help. So in February of my senior year, February of 2019, I revealed to people that I had an eating disorder. And then in February of 2020. I revealed to myself that I needed help for that eating disorder. At that point, I was like, okay, how can I get help? And this is kind of like another story in and of itself. Last year, I was a Gateway student, which meant I was at Holy Cross, which is Notre Dame Sister School, and also at Notre Dame. So I was taking classes on both campuses and was kind of like a dual identity, dual campus experience.
0: Yeah,
1: And... Ironically, Notre Dame had an eating disorder specialist, had an expert on campus, you know, for students to seek out if they needed it. Gateway students were not allowed medical services at Notre Dame. So then I was stuck. And I literally went to the count like I went to the counseling center. I explained my story. I was like, listen, like I just really need help and I really need someone who's like an expert in these things to help me confront confront this this burden and this this thing in my life that has nearly been six years gone untreated. And they're like, no, basically we cannot help you. Sorry. See you later. (laughs) And that message when you're so deep and you're so steeped in, in just an incredible amount of anxiety and depression and shame, just not the message, you know, (laughs) that I needed at the time. and. Plan B was to look in South Bend and see if there were any local counselors that would be willing to help me, and the two or three that I reached out to had were booked had you know a certain amount of clientele, and they were not taking other patients, which I understood, but then it was like, "Oh my, it was like all of these obstacles. <laughs> I was like, I just need help like someone like listen to my story and help me and then honestly, all of those things as terrible as they were during the time, led me to a counselor actually at Holy Cross who was not specialized in eating disorders. She was an intern at the time, but she she changed my life. And she was me, or she was like the first time that I actually, you know, was able to kind of prompt my healing and prompt my recovery. So that was that was the first time that I had actually declared to myself and declared to others, listen, I need help. Let me find it. And I had to advocate for myself during that time, which is nearly impossible to do when you're so steeped in like just like a a mental disorder. Like it's just, it's so hard, but I knew that I was at rock bottom and if I didn't advocate for myself, I didn't know where I was going to end up. So finding my voice in that manner was very helpful for me. It's not something I, I see other people having to do, nor do I encourage other people to have to do those kinds of things, especially during a really dark moment. But for me, that was kind of the jump start to my healing process.
0: Yeah, you finally were able to find somebody that you could then really find, find you. And it would have been really nice if one of those first Options could have been there for you. To right, do that right. Yikes! Well, so so February 2020, you found this support finally. Then there was a pandemic. Then there was a the pandemic. So how did that? How has COVID and 2020 impacted your recovery? Where Where are you now?
1: Yeah, 2020 is quite the year to decide to recover from an eating disorder, <laughs> and it's the year that I chose. <laughs> Um, but honestly, and this was, this was February of 2020. So this is about a month or so before we were sent home. So I had a about a month of, of in-person health and counseling. And then I went home and I was very nervous about going home because home was the last space of like my relapsing and my really struggling with binge eating. And fortunately, and I'm incredibly privileged and blessed to be able to say this, that quarantine was instrumental in my recovery. I think it was a combination of me just being, of, of having so much time to focus on all of these things that I had left untouched and unheard of for years and years and years. And the fact that, like, you didn't have to see anybody so whatever changes my body made and whatever changes my mind made, I didn't have to show anyone yet. I could keep it to myself and I could cherish that myself until I was ready. And so those things I think really helped me in my, in my recovery and in my healing. So, so quarantine, again, was instrumental. And I was able to do a ton of journaling during that time. That was really a key part of my recovery and fixing my relationship, not only with food, but also with myself. At this point during during quarantine, I decided, you know what? no more scale. I will be weightless for a long time. <laughs> and that is still something I'm you know doing and I don't see an end to that anytime soon. but I had to redefine how I my, my own identity. So no longer was it about weight. It was about how my defined relationally to other people, how my a good friend, a good daughter, a good sister. and also, in that way, it was very vocational for me because I got to figure out what I wanted to do because I figured out who I was. When I constructed my identity, I kind of constructed where I can see that identity in a space, you know in my career. And that was really helpful for me as well during recovering. It was hard coming back to school after quarantine because it was again a space of a lot of anxiety and stress, especially the beginning of this year, we had an outbreak at Notre Dame and we had to go on lockdown for two weeks, which that I, I'm in a single and with that isolation was really difficult. But again, I felt like I had the skills necessary to combat those things. And out of some dark moments in the beginning of the semester is where my own podcast was born out of, which I think is kind of beautiful to think about. And then the podcast Ever since then has been another instrumental part of my own recovery.
0: That's amazing. That's it is, it's it really highlights how some of the essential parts of healing are having the space and time to attend to yourself, right? That it doesn't have to, you know, that that's slowing down in in many ways that's so so many people experience during quarantine or the, the isolation, which can be really difficult, also has a side of attending to us and what do we need?
1: What, so what's next? What do you dream of for the future? I would say I, the, I've only been doing the podcast for like two months or so now, but I will say like it has completely transformed the trajectory of my life. I am studying film, television and theater, and I would like to be some kind of filmmaker or screenwriter. And one of like my passion projects is doing like an eating disorder film in some way, whether that's a documentary or whether that's a narrative, kind of fictionalized account of an eating disorder. But I do see myself in, in that arena eventually. I will also say some of the things that I've learned from doing the podcast which i think will inform a lot of my career choices in the future is number 1 in 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 a way like i gifted myself my own voice and this is kind of what i did in the po- in the poem back when i was a senior but did it even more profoundly with the podcast when you free yourself number 1 eating disorders demand silence so when you free yourself from that obligation of silence you in a way begin to heal And that's what I've noticed because you kind of prompt yourself the space to heal. And also what I've noticed is that when you free yourself from the obligation of of silence, not only do you liberate yourself, but you you also liberate others. And that is something I've noticed just in the past two months of the podcast. I've had people uh, mention to me how the podcast has been an opportunity for them to acknowledge perhaps destructive behaviors in their own life and prompted them to begin to heal and to seek help, which it was enough to do the podcast purely for myself and for my own recovery. But that addition of of people saying how much it's helped them has been just tremendous. And it's something that I can see myself continuing to do to continue again with that, like giving meaning to suffering and also giving meaning to other suffering as well. The overall theme, I guess, here in going forward is just becoming like an amplification of others' voices, even my own. And no longer like am I kind of motivated by comprising a very small amount of space or, or lessening that space in any way. I'm instead motivated by becoming like a beacon of, of storytelling freedom and, and choice. For those in cinema, and then for those just, you know, who have dealt with these things, who who want a platform to share their experiences, which is why I'm so grateful to be here.
0: That's fantastic. Well, we're, we're super excited to cheer you on along the way, <laughs> you. help in any way we can. I I do think that your concept is just so beautiful. About we heal when we when we know that others suffer too. We heal in relationships yes. that that. You're completely right that eating disorders demand silence and, and isolation is sort of the hallmark of eating disorders, that if we can open up that isolation and, and connect, amazing things happen. And much of it is connecting with ourselves and with other people, right? Exactly. That's wonderful. I have a, a question for you. So A lot of, a lot of people who, who listen to podcasts about recovery from eating disorders often are struggling with an eating disorder and trying to figure out what to do next. Yeah. (laughs) So what would you say to somebody who is right now struggling and thinking, you know, what should I do? I think I'll just, you know, it's not that big of a deal. I'll just kind of keep focusing on the stuff that's right in front of me. And and I'm not really going to focus on the eating disorder. It's not that important. What would you say to them?
1: Yeah, I think it's very telling just from my story in that I needed the space during quarantine to... Really abandon anything else and solely focus on on my healing and my recovery. How important that space and how important that time is, because one of the questions that I asked myself before going into recovery is, "What does life worth living mean like to you?" And I like wrote a list of like these are the things that make life worth living that I want for myself, because ultimately you either choose recovery, and you choose healing, or you choose a life dictated by food, and by your body. So you have to make that choice for yourself. And it's terrifying. And it can be incredibly overwhelming. But I would, I would, you know, just say that if you, if you number one, give your space to think about that, about a life worth living, and how to get those things, And also give yourself the space to work through those things and to confront all of your past issue, past or present issues with eating disorders in order to get to that space. It is, it changes your life. Like it really, truly does. And it's one of the hardest things you'll have to do, especially just the choice of of making that decision. But if you delay your recovery, you delay your life.
0: Absolutely. So much wisdom in that.
1: Where can people find your podcast? So the podcast Heavier Than I Look is on a number of of podcast streaming platforms. It's on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podbean. Um, There's also an Instagram at Heavier Than I Look and a Twitter at H T I L Podcast. So if people want to interact with the podcast further or even like reach out to me or, or ask for advice or anything, those are platforms to reach me on. Fabulous. Well, thank you so much for being with us and sharing your story today, Kira. Thank you so much for having me.
0: You're welcome. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, rate, or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you'd like to learn more about the EMILY Program and what we do, visit emilyprogram.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at Emily Program. Piecemeal Meal is produced by Angie Mitchell and Nancy Linden with music by Dan Forkey. Thanks for listening.